0: Welcome to Being in Practice. I'm Erin Davis. I use they, them pronouns. I'm a therapist. I'm Danny Dwyer-Willingham. I use they, she pronouns, and I'm a quantum somatic coach. And we're a couple of queer, neurodivergent, multi-passionates here to get curious and unpack elements of collective and individual experiences through our intuitive, trauma-informed lenses. We're both practitioners and people in our own constant discovery here to provide
1: education, entertainment, and exploration on the practice of being as messy and as multidimensional as it can be. Let's, Let's be, be in, in practice, practice together. together.
0: Hi everyone, and welcome back to Being in Practice. I'm Danny. I'm Erin. And we are here with an amazing guest and an interview for you today on the wide ranging topic of identity, Fluidity and being non-attachment to identity, and kind of everything that encompasses in the human experience. And with us today, we have an incredible guest, Chuck Cope Inspire. He is an artist, an author, and a content creator. And uh, we are so excited for you to be here, Chuck. Hi, welcome.
2: Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to be here too. I feel like I have I have moved through so many identities that it'll be interesting to see where we go with this.
0: Yeah, move
1: through identities. That's the key here, right? We're gonna get into it, I'm really excited.
0: Yeah. We were just saying before we recorded, this is one of the kind of topics that Aaron and I first connected around mm-hmm. because as queer folks, I feel like there is an at-large experience of people really going through this search of who am I, finding the identity that you feel like truly resonates with you, like working to shift your whole life so that identity can be possible. And then comes this reckoning I feel like about, am I too attached to this? What if my preferences change? What if my desires and community changes? Like what if I want my life to be different? So Mm. I feel like there's, I think all folks but especially queer folks can find ourselves like boxing ourselves in a little bit. And I think that part of this whole, everything we're gonna talk about is like how we just be.
1: Yeah how we can be fluid (laughs) how can we be flexible well i think i'll add to um that thinking about like what you just said about like this is a definitely is a queer experience and there's like unique things i think that happen in the queer community when we get attached to identity or those of us that do gatekeeping policing who who who's in who's out um Mm There's a lot of... Yeah, anyway, I could get into that. But also, I think this happens with non-queer people. I mean, you just said that, but I just want to, like, say, like, why is a lot of the things that are happening, like, in the country against queer people happening? Because people are so stuck to their, their, you know, straight identity, cis identity, whatever it is. Maybe not even knowingly. (laughs) Yeah. But, like, it brings up this fear because there is no room for fluidity or gray or what is that? Right. Mm-hmm. Like it affects all of us.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we anyway, kind of, we, I, no, we've, we we've can been raring keep going. <laughs> to go, but Chuck, I would love you to, you know, share whatever you'd like to about yourself and how this topic, I mean, we brought you in for this mm-hmm. interview for such a poignant reason, because I feel like my experience of you is that you are so graceful with yourself around, you know, moving through different careers and seasons and, And, you know, the whole experience of identity. So I'd love you to just share, like, what your current experience is with identity and, yeah, a little bit about who you are and, you know, how you came to be here today. Yeah,
2: Um, I think it's interesting because I feel like I'm I am moving through some things right now. We had sort of discussed that I have gone from entrepreneur to now employed person, which uh, has been really difficult for my ego to, like, accept that that's where I'm shifting right now, but also exciting and relieving in a lot of ways. Um, but it does sort of threaten that identity I had as an entrepreneur. I think um, as I've moved into my pregnancy as a transmasculine person, um, I can't bind anymore. Um, mm. And so I am perceived as female a lot more, um, but I'm a lot more resistant to being perceived as female than I was in my first pregnancy. Um, mm. I used to be a he, she, they person, and then I got sheed so much during my first pregnancy that I dropped it. And now it's funny because some days I do feel a little bit of she creep in, but I'm attached to being he, they, and I don't want people to invalidate my he, they on the she days. So it's, you know, it's interesting, um, that it's like, I don't know if that's coming from me or just wanting to simplify how people perceive me so that they don't think I'm wishy washy or, 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 you know, whatever the word is, um, just being inaccurate. I think, I think a lot of the things I see that there are always people talking about detransitioning or trying to sort of invalidate the trans experience as confusion. And I just kind of don't want to give them any fuel for that. But I think you're right that I do resist my own truth of that true gender fluidity. um, Mm. Because I get I get scared.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I you use the word ego to go back a little bit. I loved everything you just said. It's beautiful. And it's so on point for what we're going to get into today. But I I do want to just I like to make sure we all are on the same page, especially with our listeners of what ego is. Cause I think there are a couple definitions we could be working off of, or some Mm -hmm. people have one idea about what it is and maybe other people have another. So when you use that word, what, what is that for you? or us (laughs) today? I think
2: ego is maybe my, the most insecure and also most present version of myself. Um, It's the clinging part of myself that, that, Wants to be sure of everything that wants to be perceived as powerful and and um, successful. Uh, it's the part of myself that's really concerned with the things that I think my like super self truly doesn't care about and knows don't matter. My ego is like the little like you know okay. <laughs> I have to hold onto this so tightly or I'll die. You know, it's <laughs> all the fears and all that.
0: And that's the attachment piece. So maybe it's the ego that's grabbing onto these identities that we think we need to hold for whatever reason to be ourselves in the world, or even just to, you know, for attachment reasons, like we want to belong, we want to, you know, ex- exist in community, we want to exist in our bodies safely and in ways that feel good for us. But I think that, yeah, I mean, I I think ego is such a it's such an interesting word because I think, like you said, there are so many ways people can perceive it. And I think that it's been demonized in a lot of ways. And the way that I Mm -hmm. perceive ego is, you know, it's like, it is the part of ourselves that it's the survival self, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's the part of our brain that tells us like what we've got to do to be okay in every moment. And that can serve us sometimes. And it can also like really inhibit us sometimes. So I feel like learning to reckon with the ego self potentially is a part of coming to be able to detach from such narrow ideas, narrow identity. I mean, that's probably something definitely could serve people far outside of the queer community. <laughs>
1: <Yes>. <laughs> Way
0: beyond. <laughs> definitely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I think because we're all born. I mean, I think of it like too. like, right, we're all born as like I think of it a little bit like little egos, need, 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 want, want, what as it mm-hmm. should be. We, we, we can only cry to get fed and that's survival. And cause we are completely vulnerable and have no chance of survival on our own at that point in yeah. infancy and, you know, several years after. So we, it's like in us and it does serve us. It is survival, but then we grow out of being completely in need and vulnerable and Mm -hmm. can't take care of ourselves we grow out of that but our ego is still intact because it was this big part of our developmental beginning and then we it's like a process of unlearning maybe a little bit that it's okay ego this doesn't mean we're gonna die I know it meant Mm -hmm. that in infancy but it's okay that if I'm lesbian and I had sex with a man once like it's okay like that doesn't mean I'm not a lesbian or maybe it does and it doesn't matter either I don't know right like for an example yeah the labeling of (laughs) Mm -hmm. everything
0: the gold star and the all Mm -hmm. of the things I feel like that is so rampant in the queer community i mean again outside of the queer community also like you are straight or you're not or whatever so i feel like let's just like break it open with everything we're everything we're gonna get into today i
1: don't know if you had any thoughts on what i just said chuck or any other thoughts on this topic so far well one of the thoughts i had about like the queer
2: community like being really attached to labels is um, I know for me when I first heard the word non-binary, I was so relieved. Mm-hmm. It was like it was like a like a life preserver in an ocean of confusion of gender my entire life. And so mm-hmm. I was like, oh thank God, you know, this label exists. I also think, and this comes into the work I'm doing at the nonprofit now, there's a lot of overlap between the autism community and the trans non-binary community. And something that does help me feel safe sometimes. And I think this may be related to to some of my spectrum experience is having the words for things, Mm -hmm. because I'm so used to being misunderstood that precision of language is part of my feeling of safety. And so I wonder Mm -hmm. if that is a a factor for some people.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Definitely. Highly yes. (laughs) I also go to like, I, am you know, as a therapist and working with clients, like, I think I was just working with someone where we figured out something that applies to to her it's had like some skin thing that she'd been having a lot of shame about and she was so ashamed of this experience what she was going through that she couldn't even google to see if what she had was like treatable or curable Mm -hmm. and so i just googled it for her in session with her permission and we found a label that applied and this label came with it's very treatable Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. like this i think right like it's it's what you said chuck but i also think like sometimes getting a label whether it's i'm not necessarily talking about a queer label but other labels in our life really help with right even like i think about diagnosis like autism like oh my gosh yeah so i'm not bad anymore this is just how my brain works we can go from i'm bad to this is just how things go for people like this with labels yeah and then we get and and it's helpful And I think that's the tricky balance is labels are helpful to a point Mm -hmm. until our egos get involved too much or whatever else. And then we are attached to this is the only way I can be or this is the only thing I am.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we just had, we had an amazing conversation with Dr. Devin Price about neurodivergence and autism Mm -hmm. and you know, how, Mm -hmm. how embracing our neurotype differences is like part of breaking free in this world and creating new realities for people who, you know, just truly have different brains. And I feel like getting a diagnosis like ADHD or like, autism or like, I mean, I've been diagnosed with complex PTSD. Like all of those things are so have been so informative and so validating in my lived experience because otherwise, like, am I just walking around doing everything wrong all the time? Like, Mm -hmm. am I just completely inept and incapable of like living in a society? And yes, part of that is yes, because this society is not equipped Mm -hmm. to meet the needs. And as Dr. Devin puts it, society actively disables those of us who have different neurotypes or different physical abilities and disabilities. And, you know, yes, like those things are super validating. And also, this is just in my own journey, I've had to be like, yes, I have this physical disability. Yes, I have these mental learning disabilities. Yes, I've got all of these other things. And like, who am I with those and who am I outside of those things like Mm -hmm. can I be who I want to be even though I've got these like very real world limitations, you know, on like how my actual biology is, you know, Mm -hmm.
2: And what that makes me think of is how a misdiagnosis can also be really challenging. Like I believe I was diagnosed with depression as a teen and then not until I was 32 was I diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Turns out I wasn't depressed. I had a fatigue disorder. And before Mm -hmm. that, I thought I was just like not doing things right to cure my depression. I was trying to do all the things that they tell you to do Mm -hmm. to fix depression. And it turns out, no, like there were completely different things I needed to do for my Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And until I found that out, you know, I I didn't actually like I was doing all the wrong things. So mm-hmm. it was almost like a misdiagnosis was harmful. And then a proper diagnosis was helpful. Yeah. But I, I will say, and I've heard from other people that since getting diagnosed, I feel like I have been more affected. And I wonder if yeah. it's partly that I am being honest with myself about how tired I am mm-hmm. and I allow myself to rest more, or if I am more gentle with myself than I used to be, because I used to push yeah. myself really hard past my fatigue. Until I got sick, so it's 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 tough to know Hmm. like is my quality of life better with this diagnosis or not.
0: Mm. I feel like this will be a little bit of a pivot tangent, but also so tied in because I wasn't diagnosed with Ehlers Danlos syndrome syndrome until after my pregnancy and the birth that I had, which was, you know, if I had known I had EDS, it would have been, I would have been able to be so differently supported Mm. and. After that, because of the way that my body handled and was able to move through that situation, which then turned into severe postpartum depression and anxiety, because my body was literally incapable of handling the trauma and the stress that it had just gone through. Hmm. I feel like, you know, same, I had, once I got that diagnosis and realized that, like, I had been in chronic pain since I was a teenager, even before that, and had been so... Gaslit by others and gaslit myself around, like, I, you know, there's no way that because my body is the way that it is, like, you're not in pain. You can do, you should be able to run two miles, like at things I could not do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there was so much grief that I had to feel. And I think that's part of the, like, it affected me more because I realized that I had been like completely disconnected from my actual real experience of life my whole life until being told, like, I have a connective tissue fatigue disorder. Like mm-hmm. that was, and I think it took me years, Year, I mean, it's been how many years now? I guess four years since my diagnosis. And I feel like only in the past year have I been able to be like shifting my perception of how it affects me with a true grace and gentleness because the first few, I was just like, wow, this is rough. And I'm sure I could go back into that at any moment, you know? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. What is, has what your experience been like, especially as a birthing person, like
2: mm-hmm.
0: having that diagnosis and going through that?
2: Yeah. I, I think, um, I had a really bad subluxation, um, after I gave birth where my shoulder was out of socket for three months. And because mm-hmm. no one knew that I had Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, I was just a one-armed single parent for three months. And I feel like if they had known I had Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, they could have treated it, but they kept treating it like a muscle injury or something like that, um, where I just needed somebody to like, you know, help put it back. Um, And I think I spent a lot of time beating myself up, like, why am I so easily, um, you know, disoriented by sound? Why am I Mm -hmm. so easily tired? And I think also now that I have the diagnosis, like I'll be at a wedding and I'll sit down after dancing and other people will be like, why do you get to sit down when you have this little kid out here? And I feel like having that invisible illness is really challenging because I don't look like a person who yep. is struggling to stand, but I am. <laughs> and um, I, think, I think that's probably the most challenging part is feeling like people will judge me as being lazy now, whereas I used to push past that judgment um, mm. because I didn't want to be perceived that way. And now I'm trying to take care of myself and sort of being shamed by other kind of parents, honestly usually older, um, like grandparents, not in my family, but sort of in the extended community.
1: I think that goes, going back to identity, that ties in really well, because yeah. I think a lot of us have experiences, a lot of our listeners I know are going to have experiences where we get stuck on an identity too, because of outward shame, not even internal shame. Yeah, Like you're saying, right? Like, I I had this experience, I was shamed, I pushed through, like you were kind of, gaslighting yourself or whatnot, however you'd put it. Um, But just bringing it back to identity, that, that idea, like, I know so many, so many people, I know so many people personally and professionally that, I mean, and that's part of your story of like being straight (laughs) because of out, like maybe outward shame about, you know, being the potential of being gay because of religion or social pressures or our family dynamics or whatever, Um, But I also know so many people that like are later in life. I was going to say, quote unquote, later in life, like discovering their queer identity Mm -hmm. or accepting their queer Mm -hmm. identity because of this outward shame thing that you are talking about.
0: I feel like going back to what both of you said, like it's almost like to be able to embrace our identities, whether it's a disability, whether it's, you know, ADHD, autism, Queerness. queerness, Mm-hmm. Transness, non binariness, whatever it is, it takes a true reckoning and reclamation of autonomy to even be able to say, This is who I am. And to when that outward perception comes in, to be able to say, You know what? This is what I need. This is like, this is my experience. I get to take up this space. I get to sit down in that chair. Mm -hmm. I get to be whoever and however I need to be to take care of myself, as long as it's not harming others, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think like so many of us are raised to, to not learn how to take care of ourselves, to not have that voice i think you know reclaiming my voice to be able to even say like i am a disabled person like that was that was a tough reckoning for me to be able to like speak that and be like this is who i am and whatever you think about me because of how i look it doesn't it doesn't change the fact that this is how i have to move through the world Mm -hmm. you know and i think that like so many people in the in the queer community who are misgendered who like go through these experiences of being like this is who I am. And, and we have to kind of, we live in a world that doesn't, that perceive, I guess we just live in a world that perceives. We mm. judge people for their outward, ex, ex you know, their exteriors. We judge people for how they look and how they move through the world. And I say we, because it is, it is a collective experience, Yeah. but so often <clears throat> we're wrong and we're invalidating people and we're, you know, misgendering and we're, we're giving people such a, we're taking away so much autonomy from folks. And again, I say we, because Mm -hmm, this is like the at-large. And I think like, as individuals and as communities who are working together in this kind of, you know, the intersectional communities, as you said, Chuck, like how there's such an overlap in autistic and trans and non-binary and queer folks and ADHD folks, like learning how to work together to both solidify our identities, and also like protect ourselves, and, and allow everyone to still be who they are. And if that's fluid, that's a part of the experience, too.
2: And, and to believe people when they tell you what your what their experiences like my partner is sometimes perceived as non binary, but he's a he him. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think that's something that's really interesting is we might be like, oh, well, that person has like a a very fluid gender expression. And he's like, no, I'm just I'm just queering what it means to be a guy, to be a guy's guy. You know, And it's like, well, that's great. Like, if that's what your orientation is towards yourself, I love that for you. And who Mm -hmm. am I to tell you that's true or not? And even so now I'm working in the nonprofit world trying to do healthcare advocacy for LGBT people. Mm -hmm. And there were people higher up than me that almost wanted people to prove their queerness. And we've had the conversations that are like, people don't always look queer, you know? Like a person, so much of it is an internal experience that is really between the person and themselves. And it's not up to you to validate it. Like so many people love to try to invalidate me on the internet about like, whoa, you'll never, the funny comment I get is you'll never be a real woman because they perceive me as a trans woman, which I actually find hilarious. Um, (laughs) But like confused trans folks will just try to like, say like, you know, that's not real. And it's like, I don't know why you think I would care what you think. (laughs) because this is about how i feel about myself and i'm only expressing it for other people who need to see someone else put words to their experience
0: yeah
1: this i think it would be important to like this is reminding me of like right like bis. i always say this word wrong bisexual start th- ir- erasure? erasure
2: i cannot say that
1: word. i've never been <laughs> yeah. able to say it i'll never be able to say it i'm just accepting it bisexual erasure that <laughs> we have i feel like we should bring this in yeah right i think that this is I've experienced this a little bit with like the, with my non-binary identity actually was just talking with my coach the other day and she had watched this post that I had put out about my appointment for my consultation for top surgery with my plastic surgeon. Um, and she was talking to a friend about this and she had told me that like this friend of hers was saying how people that are non-binary and want gender affirming like surgery, like bigger Surgery or even test like hormone stuff, whatever that is, that it's they're just fooling themselves and they are actually trans. So, like, listening to mm. people, validating their experience, like Felicia, like my coach was not agreeing with this yeah, person, yeah, yeah. But, like something that she was hearing from someone. But, um, yeah, no, I think right, like, believing people when they say who they are and is so key. And yeah. I don't want to miss that that is a big part of this community that is not believed more often or, yeah. or or significantly, maybe it's not more often, but pretty significantly.
0: Yeah, Chuck, I'm curious what your, I mean, if, you, if you'd like to share what your experience, what your personal lived experience with your own gender identity has been like for our listeners who aren't familiar with you.
2: Yeah. I I think I had the very classic like trans kid experience of like trying to prove my masculinity but not really knowing what trans was. Mm. Um, I was very much rejected by the girls um, and also tried to play with the boys, was rejected by the boys so I spent a lot of time alone. Um, I also was just like perceived as the weird kid in my very small conservative town and just was not um, well received I would say. And then I feel like as I got older, I started to realize that I was bisexual, which is what I I now identify as pansexual, but at the time found that identity. And when I came out to my family, um, some members of my family still don't speak to me. And that was, you know, 17, 18 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, but I would say once I got to college, I experimented with some masculine expression, but still didn't identify as a trans guy because every trans guy I'd seen a picture of was like Buck Angel. And I was like, well, I'm not that guy. So I can't be a trans guy. Um, And in order to be accepted and in order to feel like dateable, because I'd been largely rejected in my hometown in college, Mm -hmm. I went high fat. I was long hair, push up bras, short skirts, the whole mind, like really, really trying to be accepted as a acceptable female. And I never really felt that comfortable, but I did feel validated um, by the attention that I got. And then, yeah, (laughs) it's great. Uh, but then I, um, I started hanging out with this group of drag performers in Spokane. And one of the drag performers was, um, actually there it's the nine year anniversary of that night today. I I realized thanks to Facebook memories. Um, one of those folks told me they were non-binary and I was like, what is that? And they told me, and I was like, you mean, I'm not bad at being a girl and I don't have to be stone cold Steve Austin. I can just be whatever in the middle and um, I think as I've sort of edged more towards the masculine experience, I definitely had my misogynist period, which I think a lot of trans guys go through, where I was just like problematic um, and not great. Um, and then I sort of realized that like, there are very feminine cis gay men. And once I sort of realized that that was kind of where I fit um, in the masculinity mm-hmm. spectrum, or at least my, what you know, whatever. Um, I think that's kind of been my safe spot is like, makeup and mesh and 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 masculinity and just kind of queering the whole thing yeah. um, and and letting whatever feels true to me in the moment be true um, I think yeah it, it is hard giving that up being pregnant right now I'm definitely having a lot more dysphoria it's hard to see trans guys continuing their transition while mine's on pause mm. um, but you know that's parenting is a lot of sacrifice and this is you know this is just one of them so I I accept that yeah. And entered this willingly, so you know.
1: Mm-hmm. Does it feel like? I think at the beginning you were talking about right, like this fluidity that you experience, you have maybe experienced in your journey with gender, and especially now with the pregnancy and the, you know, your t- it was the part where you're talking about your pr- like the pronoun mm-hmm. stuff, especially now that you're pregnant. I guess I'm curious, like, does the fluidity and your resistance to the she even in your fluidity right like we're talking about this attachment to identity and like ego stuff and that's where we were at that point in the conversation but i guess i'm curious like what does it feel like this like resistance to she in your fluidity or how would you describe it i guess i
2: think when it first cropped up um and this was after i went off testosterone and we were like attempting to get pregnant i could feel the the s the she you know coming in I think it was really disorienting after feeling completely, none of like that was on, that was completely out of my life for so long that I've gotten rid of all the clothes I've gotten rid of, you know, anything that is affirming for the she. And so I think it was confusing. I was, I almost felt like I was encroached upon. I was like, who's this? Um, Mm -hmm. And now um, I'm sure we've talked about like shadow work or parts work probably in other contexts, but. Something I found is like in the kink context, or even in a more sexual context, sometimes that is where the she comes out. Mm. But in my day to day, when I'm just out and about that, Mm -hmm. I feel a lot more in the he they zone. And I haven't really sorted that out. And I don't know if I need to understand why that is. Yeah, Um, totally. But I found that in that context, that's where it feels most appropriate for me to express that part of myself, or that's Mm -hmm. where I feel most comfortable expressing that part of myself.
0: Mm. I love that you brought in shadow work and parts work to this whole experience, because I feel like part of reckoning with who we are is understanding who we are, all parts of ourselves. And that is an ongoing journey, for sure. It's not something I think we're ever like, I know all of who I am forever. Like it's no. because we are humans living in both linear time and nonlinear, like journeys of like healing and hitting pockets mm-hmm. of wounding and having to heal you know, traumas that crop up and deal with reactivity and just so many things. Right. And then like shock traumas. I feel like we have to do a certain amount of peeling back the layers to even get to the nuggets of like, why, you know, why right now it feels you're very comfortable with he, they, and you're also comfortable with, the she in other contexts, because those are different parts of you, like, and in a healthy way, those can be compartmentalized. Right. But I feel like that's, that's more of like an integration rather than an I'm cutting off from these pieces of me. It's like, I recognize these things. I see them for what they are. I can use them or put them away as it serves me. And I think that that even that lived, even that like inner experience is fluid. And I feel, I mean. I think this attachment to rigidity comes from so much of societal conditioning, especially in religious indoctrination. Like we are taught to be very specific ways Mm -hmm. to adhere by very specific societal standards and almost like breaking out of our personal, like our our self policing of like why we have to be the way that we think that we have to be Mm
1: -hmm. is
0: this that's a whole in learning process in and of itself which is why i think like people who you know like me came out later in life because i say later in life i mean i was 30, i was yeah. 30 but you know um still why mm-hmm. i lived my whole mm-hmm. first 3 decades without reconciling my queerness was because i like you said like i needed to be someone that was validated and approved of by society i Fit a very specific mold of femininity. I made money because of that mold. I like breaking out of that was terrifying. And I think that's like because of the going back to the ego, because of like our safety brain, we are told that breaking out of whatever mold is feels safe is we're that's othering, like we're othering ourselves. And that is like in, you know. Mm-hmm village communal context like that is that is exile you know like mm-hmm. you don't survive once you break out of the mold so i think it's also this process of like learning safety in and some for some folks it's not safe and like for some mm-hmm. folks like you mentioned like you you lose people and that is that is something that is going to be a very individual decision and experience for mm-hmm. everyone because there there is sacrifice that comes with embracing our true selves right um and there is grief and there is it's like this is not a cut and dry it's for anybody fan.
1: absolutely there's grief and freedom like tip. you know yeah it's both yes always
0: yeah yeah i'm curious chuck also especially about you were telling us before recording and a little bit here so far, like you're going through a massive career transition and, mm-hmm. and your identity as a solopreneur and content creator is changing. And I think, I think especially in like mask and masculine culture and the patriarchy, we are taught and masculine folks and men are specifically taught to like so identify with career and with productivity and all of, you know, all of the things that I feel like like provider energy, mm, let's squash that. And also like, what what is your current experience with moving through that transition of breaking out of an identity that you had and held?
2: Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like deep down, there's always gonna be an entrepreneurial mind in me. There's always gonna be that person who craves the freedom and wants to solve the problems. But right now I don't have um, a focus area for that. So it's sort mm-hmm. of just been nothing uh, which is very uncomfortable for me as a person who's always doing who's always creating who's always connecting um it's felt very disorienting to not have a laser focus but i'm off testosterone and ritalin so it's also a lot Mm -hmm. harder for me like i almost feel like i was too focused before um getting off of those medications and so it's it's interesting with the pregnancy you know removing so many things it's like you know, and I'm trying to let it just be okay, that I don't have a, a, an intense amount of inspiration that keeps me up at night. Um, I think I do get a lot of validation, self-validation, um, and just feeling of empowerment from having that thing that I'm working on um, that you know helps people or I'm proud of. Um, and And to your point earlier, like it's really challenging for me, my partner and I had a great conversation about this today. We both used to work in tech when we got together. I was making six figures. I got laid off when I, and that's when I started my business. He's still making six figures in tech. And so as a unit, we're financially fine, but I feel scared because mm-hmm. I've never relied on anyone else financially ever, especially with a child. So it, it's, again, it's uncomfortable because it's unfamiliar. But he is a very safe person and has taught me to experience secure attachment with moments of panic, which I think is normal for anyone from an insecure background. Um, he's like a safe person to even talk to about feeling scared or uncomfortable, uh, which I really appreciate. But it's it's similar. It's like it's disorienting. And I almost feel like a little bit robbed because in the entrepreneur thing, I took all the advice. I did all the things. I followed all the rules and it didn't pay off the way that they said it would. and so. I almost feel like I compromised myself and my quality of life for so long to get this thing and I didn't get it. And now I am still poor, (laughs) you know, and it's like, (laughs) um, I think when I was making six figures, I got very attached to that after never, ever, ever having money. I really liked being that sugar daddy guy. And now I don't get, I don't get to do that. So even if I want to experience that identity, I don't get to experience that identity, um, which I don't love. Uh, and yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, I think, in terms of the patriarchy and capitalism and all that, because I wish I could make people's dreams come true. And in some ways at this LGBT nonprofit, I am. I'm helping people get access to mental health care. I'm helping people get transportation to appointments. I'm helping people find top surgeons. So it's like, I'm still granting wishes, but it feels Mm -hmm. different. Um, yeah, it's difficult.
0: Hmm. I feel like, uh, what's coming up for me is just, like this is the word that Dr. Devon used, like the redemptive self. It's almost like you're having to find the redeeming qualities about your current life experience to, you know, to be okay. And I think that that is, that is a part of grappling with identity is like, what about my life right now is okay? What about my life in the before times was, did I like better? And kind of, I feel like this is in this world that is burning and that there is so much harm being actively inflicted all the time. I think it can feel hard to have hope, but like maybe there is a future of you that is reconciled with both, you know, making six figures and being that sugar daddy self and also still being this like generous, giving, helping soul that you are. And I feel like that's also something that I feel like a lot of us might be sitting with for the first time of like, is. What are what are the possibilities for marginalized people, for people who are grappling with many different identities and disabilities, and all of those influences? Like, will there be a future that we can create that feels like better for all of us? You know, I think that's something we talk about a lot. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, I
1: think what from what you said, um, I was thinking about grief and. Mm. That is can also be a factor, I think. And I'm going to use the word resisting. It's not always such an action or active thing, but like a factor in resisting or not seeing the possibility of the next identity, mm-hmm. quote unquote, the next identity, right? Um, so for you, because you, you brought up like moving from, I think earlier you said something about grief with transition from entrepreneur to employee. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is... And we've talked about our several other times, but I think that is always going to be, that is always going to be a factor when we're making a change. We lose part of ourself, or who we thought we were, or the future we thought we would have, or all of the above. Mm-hmm. And there's all, and it's not always giant, huge, shattering grief, but there is grief because there is all, there's always a loss with change. And I think that's a big part, too, probably for listeners, for myself, I know, of, like, sometimes resisting that kind of the any of these kinds of changes. Mm. Um, so I don't know. I just wanted to highlight that. I think that's important to, to remember, too, in this, like, why do we get stuck in identity? You know, I think we've listed a lot of things. Shame, fear. Grief is a part of that, too, though. Who wants to feel grief? I mean, I do. But most <laughs> yeah. people don't. I love grief. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Have you had the experience of like needing to mourn different parts of yourself as you move through changes?
2: Today was actually a really hard day uh, because we're dismantling my office to turn it into a guest room. So you can't see it, but below the camera line, it's all boxes. Um, Hmm. So this whole room that I built is my recording room as my, you know, I had ideas all over the wall that we just took down and I cried, you know, for like Mm -hmm. 30 minutes after I had to take a break, you know, it was really hard to just realize like how much love and how much hope and how much faith mm-hmm. I put in. And it's like, sometimes that's not enough. Mm, yeah. Sometimes all the hard work and all the faith and all the manifestation and all that stuff, sometimes you still don't end up there. Um, yeah. And it was it was hard because I, I sacrificed my nights, I sacrificed my a lot of my mental health, my work-life balance. So in some ways this new job is great because I have such spaciousness. Mm. to rest and especially growing a human being like I can mm. also be growing a business like those two mm-hmm. things are just not cohesive currently mm-hmm. um and there was something I wanted to say too about identities is I feel like no matter how creative I am at a given time I always identify as an artist because mm. at any time I can get slapped in the face with some inspiration and then write a whole poem and I I feel like I always have to be receptive to the creative force moving through me Mm. And so that's an identity that has never shifted for me. And Mm. I don't think it will ever. Um, I hope. Mm. That's beautiful.
0: How do you stay connected to that artist side of yourself with everything else going on for you? Because I think that's something a lot of people like I know for myself, I have like a I am in the process of healing like a deep creativity wound and being Mm. like staying open to inspiration. How do you do that?
2: I would say the core of my spiritual life is related to. Being an instrument for inspiration, to being an open channel for whatever wants to move through me. And that's kind of how I keep the faith in what, even what I'm doing now, is that I trust that I'm being moved by inspiration, by whatever, into the position I need to be in for whatever, you know, whoever needs me now. And I am finding individuals who might not have been found, who really desperately need housing or mental health care that only I am connected to because I'm in the community. And Mm -hmm. so it's like, maybe in this moment, I need to be here to extend a hand to this person more than I need to be making 10k months as a coach, so I can brag about it on Instagram. And in the long span of my life, I think that's probably a net positive. But Mm. yeah, for the artist thing, I've always felt um, almost over inspired, or as my friend Chris puts it uh, problematically creative. Uh, Like I have too many ideas um Mm. and so i have to i read big magic and that really helped me accept that i don't have to make every single one come true myself um that. yeah yeah, it's just it's such a it's the most core and solid part of my being is being Mm. basically a creative vessel um i actually just got a tattoo from the last unicorn says i am a bearer i am a witness i am a dwelling and Mm. it's from a magician who can't control when he does magic It just takes over his body and comes out. And that's how it feels when I do art.
0: Hmm. I love that. I love this piece that you're bringing up too, is like, that is a piece of you that has never changed. And you like, it feels like you love that part of yourself and you (laughs) will always honor that part of yourself. And I think that's an important distinction to make because we're talking about identity and fluidity and moving through transition and all of these things. And also there are parts of us that, shouldn't change shouldn't like that we get to have and hold as so sacred and I think Mm. you know learning that those parts of ourselves are valuable enough to just keep is also such a beautiful part of of the discernment that can come in of like this is actually who I am this is like the parts of me that I love and that I am willingly and forever holding on to in this human experience and then there's all the other stuff that that can change and can you know can move in and out of cycles um but i just i love that you like brought that in because i think it is it can feel overwhelming well if i have identities but also i'm supposed to detach from them and everything is supposed to be fluid like that can feel disorienting and confusing and probably very overwhelming. I know that's been my experience at times grappling with my non-binary identity, Mm -hmm. you know, has been like, poof, definitely blowing my mind open all the time. And I like Mm -hmm. had a big morning, like I did a big uh, closet clean out with my partners a few weeks ago. And like two days later, I just like, sobbed and I was like I just want to be like a woman again I just want to be a femme again you know like that would Mm -hmm. be so much easier than having to feel what it feels like to embrace what does feel true for me and you know it could change but also like there are deeper parts of me beyond how I present in the world and beyond like my gender identity and sexual orientation that like that I do love and that I will hold and like being you know an intuitive like that is something that for me Mm -hmm. is like that's my connection to the spirit world and like that is something that like I won't change and let go of so I think also getting to recognize that and uncover those things for ourselves Mm -hmm. is like also a beautiful part of this process of just like being (laughs) that's
2: interesting that you sort of bring up that intuitive or I would even in myself call it like the magician Mm. in that I, for so long, did have such a strong connection, and in the last year and a half, it has been like, like it's been really difficult to actually connect with that part of myself, and it mm-hmm. almost feels foreign to myself to try and re-engage, or I feel even a little bit like repelled by it in a way that I don't understand. I think you and I have probably discussed this in the past, and that's something I thought would never change as a core mm-hmm. part of myself, and now I'm struggling to grasp it. And it feels so elusive. I I still feel have the faith that it'll come back, but it's it's it feels far away.
0: I mean, that's like bringing spirituality into it. I think is a whole other piece of identity because we. I was just thinking. Yeah, because we, I think, whatever spiritual identities we take on, whether it's you know I love astrology or I do tarot or whatever, I think going through cycles of any modalities, like being in therapy for a long time, these tools that we accrue in our survival and in our unlearning and in our healing process, sometimes they just don't serve us for a long time. And I think that's also a part of like, I've grappled with the things that I used to do very like ritualistically Mm -hmm. have fallen away in my life because of the way that I like, I'm a Disabled single parent with mm-hmm. a, you know, building a okay. practice and like there, I just, I can't do ritual and tend my altar in the ways that I used to and do all of those things. Does it mean I'm less spiritual? No. Do I do the things the way that I used to? Mm-hmm. No. Will that always be the case? Probably not. But also, I think like in Western spiritual culture, we can also really attach to how, the how. And sometimes it's just the being of like, <laughs> we are, we are spiritual beings. I mean, that's my perception. And like, that is enough, even if you're not using the tools or doing the things. And even if you feel disconnected from certain parts of the way that you used to feel, it's like, you just, you're just, you know, you're a human and that's enough.
2: And that made me think too, that there's parts of myself that I don't get a chance to express. Like mm-hmm. I'm still a, polyamorous relationship anarchist but i now live in a much smaller area that is not portland oregon so it's a lot harder to find people who want to explore that relationship style with me and even though i'm not actively dating multiple people i still identify as polyamorous and i think there's a lot of bisexual people with that bisexual erasure you were mentioning where people will just assume you're straight
1: and it's like i'm still bi uh, i'm just dating a dude right now <laughs> or just a lesbian or just gay like all yeah, like either directions totally yeah.
0: Yeah, like the relation. We we had a whole episode about relationships and brought in relationship anarchy and polyamory and mm-hmm. polyintimacy into it. And you know, I'm a polyintimate relationship anarchist in a sexually monogamous relationship. Mm-hmm. You know that like some people might be like, "What are you doing?" But that's it's good for me. You know, I don't. Yeah. I, again, going back to this constant reconciliation of like. Okay. I think the, I think I've heard us mention so many times, like the, one of the core pieces is just the self-validation piece. Like we've just got to be okay. Not even that's okay. That's what I'm saying. It's this acceptance piece of like, we are our own first acceptors and our own first validators and whatever that looks like for us as it changes, as it doesn't. I think that's the centering that comes through. Just being like, these are the pieces of me and they might change. And these are the pieces that aren't changing. But like, I think it becomes so much easier to live in this world that has so much external judgment and influence when we are able to find peace in those parts of ourselves, whatever that looks like and however long that takes.
1: Yeah. So many
0: thoughts over here. Just What are are some
1: of your thoughts? (laughs) I don't know. Just like. Black and white into the gray that comes to mind, right? Like I also think about I've been thinking about like the identity of like gym goer or like person that works out yeah. or like the spiritual practice person or whatever it is. I I I think something that's helped me along the road with that relationship to like you know moving my body is it's really helped me to turn it from if I'm not working out I failed and no longer. Mm-hmm. Am I like a person that works out because I failed, which is that black and white kind of thought to, and I think this applies for a lot of things we've been talking about too. Like mm-hmm. I have a lifelong relationship with my body, with moving my body, with working out, with, with any of anything that I, right. Like I even think about like getting tattoos, right. Like some people are really scared about getting tattoos because It's like this permanent thing, and what if I hate it afterwards? and It's like this, like lack of. This sounds harsh, but like a lack of almost like this self forgiveness or this like self honoring Mm -hmm. that like at one point in time I really wanted this tattoo, and I really loved this tattoo, and it meant X, Y, or Z to me at the time. And now, and you know, I even have tattoos. I'm like, yeah, like I like whatever. Like I don't hate it. I'm not like this is terrible. I hate my myself for doing that. Like, but I do think there are people that think that well, it's permanent. And what if I hate it later? Well, where's the self forgiveness? Where's this lifelong relationship with self even that you have? Like, why can't I honor like, Oh, my 18 year old self was so silly. They loved this shit. Great. Like, and it's on my body. And I honor that that was a part of my my story. Just like I honor that, like, even if I'm not going to the gym every day, I have a lifelong relationship. I'm approaching gym time as a lifelong relationship. So I can't cut it off just if I'm not doing it right now. Mm-hmm. I don't know. These are all the thoughts that have been stirring in me as you guys were talking. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think like, that's also an important distinction between like ha- being an able-bodied person versus being a disabled person. I think that's a whole other reconciliation that comes with like, mm-hmm. I can't do yoga anymore. You mm-hmm. know, like things like that, that used to be a part of mm-hmm. who I thought I was. But also I think another through line that I'm just hearing resonates so deeply is the impermanence yes. piece is like, you're like, people don't get tattoos because they're permanent or, you know, they're afraid of that permanence. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like, I think the, I think what's coming up in this conversation is that fluid fluidity and identity are impermanent because we are bodies, you know, Mm. (laughs) and that can be, yeah. I mean, how, how do you feel about that? Chuck?
2: (laughs) Well, yeah, one of the things that makes me think of is I often will make a joke that as humans, we grieve the loss of a static universe. But like entropy is the only constant. And we just so desperately want the sandcastle to never wash away. But it's like, maybe that's the game. Like you Mm -hmm. build it so that because it's going to wash away. And that's why it's beautiful to witness right now.
0: Can you say more about that, please? (laughs) Yeah. The entropy piece?
2: Yeah. So one of my good friends, he's a strange improv comedian writer guy who always has these incredibly deep insights in between just totally off color things that you probably should never say to people. Um, But he always like talks about entropy. He's almost like a a priest of entropy, like Mm. loss and change is just part of it. And witnessing the growing and the changing and the losing is, is part of being human. And I think it is also so human to desperately grasp that that Mm -hmm. you don't want entropy to take this thing from you. But I think maybe my relationship to Buddhism or Mm -hmm. whatever, you know, even spending a lot of time in the natural world is to appreciate that that cyclical nature of the universe and the the fact Mm -hmm. that everything in your life is here with you now, so you should appreciate it now. I mean, having little kids, everyone's always like, they won't be little forever. And it's like, it's true. I'm almost looking forward to having a newborn again because I missed the slug mm-hmm. phase, which during the slug phase I was like, oh my God, I'm dying. <laughs> you know, but, but now I'm like, oh that'd be nice. You know, she can't yell at me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's so funny. Yeah, having a six year old now I'm like, it's going by quickly. And also <laughs> the days are so long. Mm-hmm. But also yeah, it's like it, this won't be my life forever. And I, I think I love that you brought in like experiencing the natural world as, as teacher of this, because Mm -hmm. I think in Western society, I mean, this, this would be a whole other like season of episodes, but typically we are so disconnected from earth, which is why she's burning. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, um, I think like part of, part of learning to reconcile identity and humanity is connecting with with nature connecting with life and death cycles and birth cycles and the fact that you know things die to become compost to grow and I feel like that's such a perfect metaphor for this identity piece like the pieces of ourselves that we feel like we have to cut away or want to cut away like they can turn into compost to then help us grow the newer parts of ourselves that serve us or the ways that we want to move through the world differently at you know at every juncture and I think like giving ourselves permission to do that because we are nature because our bodies are literally magical, like creation part of the universe. Like our identities are no different from the way that like seasons move through and, you know, take leaves off trees. It's like, we can, Mm -hmm. we can choose to keep our trunk and we can also let go of things as they don't serve us and turn them into fodder for, you know, what's what beautiful things we get to create next.
2: Well, I think even like having a garden, sometimes you have to wait. Like one of my favorite things to say is the unripe berry will never taste sweet. Like you're going to have to wait for that little baby to give you consent and fall into your hand. That's when it's ready to be eaten. But if Mm. you have to yank on it, if it's, you know, if, if it's not ready, it's not ready. And I think that's what I'm trying to accept with this season of stepping back from entrepreneurship is maybe there's things I'm going to learn in this position that will fold into my next season of entrepreneurship that Mm. I could not have learned if I had just kept pounding, you know, being a social media coach or whatever I was doing.
0: Yeah. But Mm. I was
2: clearly burnt out and tired of.
0: Right. Mm. Right. And also like you recognizing that now, like you get to kind of recoup some of what you lost and spend time like being in this, this slower cycle. I mean, I say slower, but you're about to have a baby. So, you know, it's slow in its own way. But I feel like, that is that is anti-capitalist in nature, also of like I don't have to keep spinning. I can break out of cycles or I can just accept the natural, the natural cycles of things. That is so inherently opposite than the binary and polarity of grind culture and mm-hmm. you know, all of these things that I know we're actively working against. And I think even just doing Like it shouldn't have to be down to the individual to change those things, but doing that as an individual can be so powerful and have such a ripple effect. So Mm -hmm. I just, I love that, you know, you are turning even these changes in your life into opportunities. And I feel like that's, it's a really powerful lesson I think, and Mm -hmm. definitely really resonant, yeah.
2: I I think something that's always helped me when I'm going through something uncomfortable is to think of it as a season. And mm-hmm. that, you know, similar to seasons, like I had an entrepreneurial season, maybe this is almost, you know, it, it can't be summer forever. So mm-hmm. this is the the fall and the winter period. And then when it is time for me to write, you know, my roots to, to go down and my shoots to come up, then I'll I'll be there for that. But now is the dormant season. And that's okay. Because it's not mm-hmm. like how it used to be in the past where you like became an electrician and stayed an electrician for 50 years. It's like, we don't, we don't live in that world anymore.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think also, I mean, this is a piece that, again, would take a lot to go into, but I think people with mental illness, I think of myself in my periods of clinical episodic depression or situational depression, like feeling like that is interminable and like that will never end. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the first time it happened now, over a decade ago, I was like, I like truly believe that that was going to be how I lived forever like I did not see a light at the end of the tunnel and no amount of somebody saying it will be over or this is seasonal Mm -hmm. change that part of me you know like or change that belief that I had so I think part of it is like is experience and hopefully we can get to the other side where we can then see that like only through living in cycles can we begin to embrace that things are cyclical because when we're in such a period and you know what whatever that is whether it's mental illness or just like just mm-hmm. a burnout cycle or whatever like that can feel so pervasive and I think it can feel invalidating to hear like oh it'll be over kind of like as a parent you hear like oh enjoy it and you're like also oh, this is the fucking hardest thing I've ever done you mm-hmm. know stop telling me to love it I don't right um like I love my kid but parenting is hard right so I think like it only comes through the the light the life of it all <laughs> like
1: really I'm glad we're bringing up the cyclical part because I yeah. think that's a big thing about non-attachment for me is mm-hmm. that things are supposed to end. So the more we, I think it does come with experience. Like you said, the more we can get comfortable with that. It is a discomfort initially, right? That the idea, like getting comfortable with the thought that things are supposed to end. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a radical thought and it doesn't mean every single thing will, but probably but, most things will. But won't they? I'm <laughs> getting, well, yeah, sure. <laughs> And getting uncomfortable, allowing that discomfort is so important. I think it goes back to the relationship episode. That's what I really like the basis of my like poly mindedness versus monogamy mindedness. The idea that like in monogamy mindedness, right, it's one thing ideally forever that never ends. And that that applies, this applies to more than just relationships. So Mm -hmm. I'm bringing it Mm -hmm. in that like poly mindedness in my mind is things are ever flowing things are fluid things are supposed to end like a fail, ending is not failure right like in Mm -hmm. in poly mindedness ending i think out from the outside in right like especially for monogamous people monogamy minded people polyamory doesn't work because it fails all the time but that failure is an ending it's just ending it's It's just just an ending and i do not equate failure and ending as the same and that's a part of getting That's part of what I'm saying, right? Like getting comfortable with discomfort. It's the same idea. They're all interrelated.
0: I mean, and I can imagine for you, Chuck, I'm curious what you've grappled with. I mean, we've talked about this, but like of your identity going from solopreneur to employed person, like has, has that been your experience that you've had to, you know, just accept that? Yeah, I
2: I would say similar to what I said about believing that this, you know, Inspiration to me always means with spirit. And so spirit is placing me in this position in order to say something, learn something, witness something, whatever. And I'm trying to trust that it was so easy for me to get this job. It just flowed Mm -hmm. effortlessly. And whenever that happens, Mm -hmm. even if I don't understand it or I'm uncomfortable, I try to witness it as um, almost like non judgmentally as possible to see what I can take from it if I try to take it all in without the, the lens mm-hmm. of, of attachment. Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot for me to gain from being in this space. Like I said, that I wouldn't have gotten from, if I had just continued to shut myself in this room and make TikToks and get progressively more frustrated that I, you know, wasn't signing clients. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I'm just trusting that right now, this is the right time. And even if it was, it is hard to let go of what I wanted to happen. And mm. what I was working towards and what I was promised, you know, by all the business gurus. Um, there's the grief for that and the grief for the time I won't get back. But mm. I feel like I'm okay with where I am right now. Yeah. Even if there is grief mixed in. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And like Erin just said, I think if we, if we're polyminding everything, if we're queering everything, endings don't have to be failures. Most of the time, they actually aren't. They're just transitions. Beginnings. And beginnings. Yeah. So I feel like, so cool, cool. yeah. It's all around and around and around we go. (laughs) It is. Yeah. I'm curious if you have any resources you'd like to share for, you know, fluidity, identity in general for our listeners. I really like,
2: there's a book called Jeffrey Marsh called How to Be You. And it's, um, Mm -hmm. it's like a biography with a workbook mixed in that is really great. If you're just starting to come out to yourself and you don't like have the words, it's a really good book for that. Um, I also really like, uh, there's a book by Gay Hendricks called The Big Leap. And it's about the things that might hold us back from um, kind of our next stage of being. And one of those is like fear of betraying who we've been and where we've been. And I think that Mm -hmm. sort of came up in this episode. Um, So I really like that. And then um, there's a book also called The Creative Act by Rick Rubin, which is just full of incredible non-attachment advice. I would say mostly for creatives, but beautiful, beautiful, spacious uh, words that i I've really enjoyed,
0: mm. thank you. I love that i mean just just in that piece, I feel like we didn't talk about in the artist piece, but like I think artists can get very attached to creations, whether mm. it's books or you know things mm-hmm. that we've done, like bodies of work, right, and I think that's a whole other unlearning process of like art is just art, and creativity is fluid, and things will come, and things will go. so I love that, and I will definitely be reading those books. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anywhere that people can find you anymore? Or are you are you kind of closed books as far as people, you know, one-on-one working and that sort of thing in this season?
2: Uh, I would say I'm still willing to work one-on-one with folks. Um, you can find me, Magical Weirdo Chuck, uh, on the internet in general. Um, I'm on Instagram still as that, and I have my website up still. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if Magical Weirdo Chuck will come back as what it was or if it will come back as something else. Um, but if you want to do one-on-one consulting on, self-publishing, content creation, sales funnels, whatever it is about getting the word out about what you're doing. I'm still happy to help people.
0: Yeah. And Chuck is a genius. So <laughs> if you can work with him, highly recommend. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Chuck, for being here, for being in practice with Erin and I, and everybody will see you soon. Yeah. Bye. Bye. <laughs>